Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual. Even with all I know and have learned deep diving into grief, it can still be hard showing up for loved ones who are grieving. So I'm really excited to have discovered Grief Warrior. Sending a Grief Warrior box is a way that friends and loved ones can say, I'm thinking of you and acknowledging your grief. Each box has thoughtfully chosen items, including a journal, anxiety relief essential oil, and so much more. My favorites are the In Morning Badge, letting others know you're in pain without having to say so, and the Ways to Help Notepad, which simplifies asking for help with tasks like laundry or errands without feeling weird for asking for help. The Grief Warrior Box provides healing and comfort, and most importantly, it's a communication from you. Head over to agriefwarrior.com and enter GGG20 for 20% off your purchase of Grief Warrior Box. Check our show notes for more info on Grief Warrior. Gratitude and Greatness explores the different ways we grieve, the gratitude that allows us to persevere, and the greatness we discover along the way, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Sarah Shaul. Just want to let you know that this next episode contains some difficult subject matter relating to the sexual abuse of a minor. Please be aware as you listen. Nathan Langston grew up in a loving home. His family were members of a church where Nathan learned scripture and had a religious upbringing. A man began to groom Nathan, sexually abusing him, beginning when he was 10 years old and continuing to do so until he was 13. The man was no stranger. He was a trusted family friend and member of their church who manipulated the situation so that Nathan's community was kept totally unaware of what was going on. Nathan had no language to understand the abuse his perpetrator inflicted upon him and lacked the agency to stop it. The abuser took advantage of this by foisting the shame and responsibility onto Nathan so that he would keep the abuse secret. At one point, Nathan nearly chose suicide to release him from his torment. Now a parent himself to two young boys, Nathan struggles with complex PTSD. Over the past 15 years, he tried many times and many ways to execute a book to share his story. In late 2019, Nathan released the book, I Need You to Tell Me Everything, as a website. The book is a poignant telling of his experience interwoven with videos and articles. He explains how survivors with complex PTSD store and process the trauma delivered to them by their abusers. As a mother, as a fellow human, I am outraged to know that children can be victimized by adults in this way. I second-guess myself sometimes. Is it naive to trust all the people in my children's lives? And how do I raise my kids in a way that they are free to explore and experience the world, preserving their innocence, yet protecting them at the same time? With my boys, I'm still learning. They're still young enough 
that I don't think that they would be in situations where they would be at risk, but it definitely is something that crosses my mind a lot. And it's something that I'm learning as I go along. I think dealing with my own trauma has helped me put their place in perspective, but simultaneously just knowing how beautiful they are, how innocent mm -hmm. and clean they are, makes thinking about what happened to me even worse. It's something I struggle with. When you say that it makes it worse, just that reminder of how innocent you were at that time? Sure. I mean, before I had kids, thinking about innocence was kind of abstract, I guess. You know, I would try to remember it, but that's about it. Remembering your own innocence. I would try to think back, but that's a long time ago, you know? It's thinking back to when you mm -hmm. were four or five or six, uh, those memories... They're mostly like stories that you kind of reconstruct from pictures and stories right. that you've told yourself over and over and over. And it's hard to actually remember it. And I guess raising my boys, just being around them all the time, you just see how truly clean a person comes into this world. Oh, mm -hmm. for sure. I mean, I think every parent tries to maintain that innocence. Mm -hmm for their children, even those that have not experienced trauma. It's just there's such that sweetness. It's, it is so pure yeah. that you just want it to just be there for as long as possible. Well, yeah, and it, it's a hard thing, too, just looking at a kid who just wants to have fun, that just delights in everything, and just thinking in the back of your mind, like, I have to get this person ready to experience pain. You know, like I, I, ha I have to get them tough enough. I have to give them the tools that they'll need to process that sort of stuff and remain intact in this world. That's difficult. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the hardest part of parenting is the pain that the child will endure. Just knowing that they will endure that pain makes it so much harder as a parent. Well, yeah. And, and there's a lot of guilt that comes along with it, too. Just thinking every bad thing that happens to this person. I mean, I made the choice to bring them into this world. And so there's guilt that comes along with a kid's pain. And I experienced that very much in relation to my experiences and this book. Probably the hardest thing that I've ever had to do in my life was tell my parents what had happened to me. And just looking at their expressions as I told them, just yeah. looking at their faces and just seeing them crumple. I mean, I could visually see in their faces that what I was telling them was going to affect them for the rest of their lives, that it was not yeah. something that they were going to outlive. I can completely understand that. I mean, children are incredibly resilient beings, and they I think people don't realize that children really protect the adults in their lives. Absolutely. That's been my experience. And I think that it's not something I really spent much time thinking about until more recently, mm -hmm. like some of our family trauma. I didn't discuss it with my own father because I just knew it was too much for him to bear. Mm -hmm. So I can completely imagine that there was just so much pain when you told your parents. For many years, when I wasn't talking about this stuff, when I wasn't telling anyone, when I was just keeping it 
locked up, I told myself that I was protecting them. I think that was true. I think that was a very noble motivation. But I think I was also just super afraid to say anything and was using that as a little bit of an excuse not to speak up about it. When this book came out, I got just a deluge of letters from all over the place. I mean, at one point I was getting 30 to 40 anonymous letters every single day, just intense stuff. One of the letters that I got was from a woman who said that she hadn't told her brother what an uncle had done to her because she wanted to protect her brother, you know, and she didn't want to break his heart and put that on him and and force him to have to deal with that too. And so she just didn't tell him and didn't tell him for years and years and years. And then one time they were sitting out back by a campfire, you know, and she finally just, she felt she needed to. And so she told him what had happened to her. And he just immediately broke into tears and just started sobbing. And he said, that happened to me too. Mm. And I I never told you because I wanted to protect you. And so all these years they'd been living (laughs) with this same pain and not sharing it with each other, dealing with it together because they both wanted to protect each other. Well, and it also brings up this idea that's within your book, which is that children don't have the language for what's happening to them. Mm-hmm. Because we don't talk about sex with young children. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about what's appropriate for adults, but not necessarily appropriate for children. I mean, there is the nobody can touch your privates conversation. But beyond that, how does a child explain what's happened to them? Mine are very young, you know, so like two and five. A lot for us is talking about, like, if they want me to stop tickling them, mm-hmm. it's their body. They, they're they the boss of their body and they can tell me and I have to listen to that. If they're freaked out and don't want to sit on Santa's lap, I'm not going to push them onto Santa's lap just to get a yeah. photo. You know what I mean? Right. So it's just a lot of talking about those boundaries, how you have to ask before you give somebody a hug or things like that. The other thing that I've started in on is just kind of talking about the difference between secrets and surprises, you know, like how surprises are great, you know, like, no, we don't, we don't want to tell mama what we got her for Christmas because that's a surprise, you know, but that's different than a secret. A secret is something that when you don't talk about it, it hurts you. And, oh. and it doesn't feel good not to talk about it. And so our family tries not to keep secrets. If you'd like to support our work with grief, gratitude, and greatness, consider becoming a backer on Patreon. Your support allows us to deliver conversations that help to dissolve the stigma and evolve our culture around grief. You'll find a link to contribute via Patreon in the show notes. And if you have a business that supports people who are listening to our show, let's talk about how you can sponsor an episode or two or three. Your book is simultaneously one of the most beautiful things I've read and one of the most disturbing things I've ever read. (laughs) 
the writing itself is very interesting and it's not strictly a chronological telling of a story and it's a website. I had started reading it and I couldn't read it on the plane because I didn't have an internet connection yeah. on the plane. And then I think when I got home, I stayed up all night to finish it. I'd like to learn more about how you came to write the book itself and just the connection between how you experience time with your PTSD mm-hmm. and how that so reflects in the writing. The book itself, I've been trying to write it for maybe 10 years, although I had some friends say that I've shown them manuscripts like as long as 13 years ago. Basically, I'd get through maybe half of it and would just freak out, you know, just devolve into heavy drinking and nightmares and all that kind of stuff. Um, So this was actually my fifth attempt at trying to write it. Um, I had learned about a method that Vladimir Nabokov, the the novelist he used, he would just write his entire novels on note cards. Him and his wife would travel around and he would write out a single sentence or maybe two sentences or maybe a paragraph on a card and just get that perfect and then go on to the next one and the next one and the next one. And then he would arrive home with the suitcase of note cards and throw them on the ground reshuffle them, and then he had a novel. At the time, I was going through a type of therapy called EMDR, which has been shown to help with trauma. Soldiers have had success with it. Oftentimes, when you're talking or processing, you're doing so in tiny little sets, just short sets where you talk about something that you remember And then they wave a hand or some lights in front of your face for a few seconds, and then you have another little set. And so that matched up really well with Nabokov's way of writing a novel. And it really helped me when I was actually trying to get through this story, just to think, I don't have to write out the whole story. I don't have to tell the whole story all at once. I just need to get this one note card. I need to get these couple of sentences right and then I can go on to the next. You you mentioned that it's not in chronological order. I mean, part of that is because I don't think that trauma actually is stored in the memory as being chronological. The limbic system itself has no understanding of past, present, or future. So it's like a, a newborn baby in that way. So memories that are recorded there and that live there When they come up, they feel as though they're happening now. What a trigger is, that's when somebody is having, you know, one of those panicky episodes. Right. Part of going through my trauma and telling that story was going from time period to time period to time period to different parts of my mind and trying to reassemble what had happened to me from all the various places in my mind and in my body where that had been stored. Yeah, the storing of the trauma in the body is pretty incredible. There's also something else I noticed in the book. There are all these individuals, all these adult males in the book that all have the same name, Mm -hmm. like therapists and their police officer and I don't know. I lost track. But at first I was like, wait, who, wait, who's that guy? Wait, they all have the same name. Yeah, there's a uh, character in the book 
who is named Mark. And Mark is basically like a an amalgam of maybe like 23 different people. Wow. From all throughout my life, both men and women, who in some way or another helped me. This character exists outside of time, moving back and forth through memories, through time periods, taking different forms, and always just trying to help me through this. That, that, that was, that was a, a, fun, a fun thing to write, for sure. Well, once I figured that out, I, I thought that was a really cool tool or, or vehicle that you were using. Mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty incredible. And I think it really drove home what a supporter is or what a trusted person is mm-hmm. and that you saw that in all those people. Yeah. Whenever the writing of this would get too heavy, just getting through my own story, I could step back a little bit and focus on some of those devices or focus on like how I wanted to frame the book with all of its multimedia aspects online. And that helped distract me in a way that kept the momentum of the story coming. There was something else I wanted to ask you about too. There was this um, like a lion tattoo. Yeah. This lion that kept returning also. Well, sure. I mean, of the apostles, Mark is the one whose symbol is a lion. And Mark was always my favorite of the apostles because he was a doctor, he was a physician. And of all of the four apostles in the Bible, his telling of the story or whatever is the, <laughs> I don't know what you would say, the least exaggerated, I guess, the least flowery. He tried to he tried to stick to the facts or whatever that he could actually find as a physician. And for some reason, I always really liked that. And yeah, in terms of finding a person who wants to protect you, who wants to help heal you, when Mark showed up at my door to interview me the first time when he was a cop, uh-huh. that is a real story where in the, in the first chapter where he says, we found this body out in the woods with all the fingers and, and toes cut off. And I'm telling you that not to scare you, not to freak you out, not to try to impress you. I'm telling you that because you need to know that you can tell me the very worst things that have ever happened in your life. And you're not going to scare me. You don't don't have to protect me. Exactly. Just like we were talking about protecting your own parents. Mm -hmm. Ah, that was pretty genius of him. I mean, he was obviously very attuned He knew what he was doing. Yeah, and I think that after having gone through the process of writing this book and dealing with a lot of the people who wrote in, that's something that I can say too, is that I know now that people can tell me the worst things that they can possibly think of, and I'm going to be okay. They They don't have to protect me anymore. Something we don't always talk about with grief is how financially vulnerable we can be. That's why it's important to have someone on your team that you can trust. My financial planner, Leslie Tyzak at Edward Jones, is that person. She looks at what is important to me when helping with everything from managing budgets, cash flow, and where to invest and save. I got to know her when I was setting up my kids' college savings accounts. She is someone I can count on to help me and my kids optimize our resources to make the best choices when it comes to preparing for our futures. Schedule a meeting with Leslie to talk about your goals, 
Her contact info is in the show notes. I have this idea that when we keep things that are horrible inside, it's like making something very toxic sacred. Mm. And then when we share those things, it's like we just let this toxicity out. We stop holding on to this toxicity. And so being witness is so incredibly important. But for for you to receive upwards of 30 messages a day for a period of time, you say that you could handle it. Would you say it was also part of healing? I think so. It was very difficult, and it was not something I expected. It was so intense for me to write this and to publish it that I was not thinking past putting it out into the world. Mm -hmm. I wasn't really prepared for it, and at least for the first few weeks, it was a lot to handle, and I definitely had to take breaks. On the other hand, when somebody talks to you and tells you about the horrible trauma that they've been through, it's one of those things where it's like, It's awful, awful to hear about and difficult to process. But on the other hand, you don't feel alone, you know, Mm -hmm. and there is a there's a joy to that simultaneously. I think a lot of times, especially because many of these were anonymous, I either had too much to say or I didn't have anything to say. And I think a lot of times what folk needed was just what you said, just witness. I I just needed to let them know that I received their message. I heard them. I heard what they had to say. It was real. It was difficult, but it was good. The EMDR itself was able to help you. I mean, I have been doing talk therapy. 18 years I've been doing talk therapy. And I think I've had something on the order of eight therapists, eight or nine by this point. i felt like I just kept telling this story and telling this story and telling this story. I wasn't getting past it. I wasn't really making any significant progress. And I think part of the reason is, is because at least for me, and I suspect for a lot of folk, trauma doesn't live in the intellect. Mm. It doesn't live in the prefrontal cortex. It doesn't live in the part of your brain that makes words. And so I I had been really curious about EMDR because it does engage the body. There's always the physical aspect of like looking back and forth or in some way or another physically engaging by hemispheric movement back and forth, back and forth. Mm -hmm. So that was something that I was curious about. And it's true. It's like just adding in that one physical component completely disrupted the rehearsed story that I had to tell it distracted me enough that I would in each session surprise myself. Like I would end up talking about something that I didn't think was related to the story at all. And then I would make another wild jump and another wild jump. And these things, they occurred to me in the moment, like religious experiences. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I I cried that year more and harder than I ever have in my life. Like there was just a pent up reservoir of unwept tears Mm. um, behind my eyes. And just getting that out felt really good. But it definitely confirmed the feeling that a lot of my trauma was in my body. I mean, my body was what was used to molest me, to uh, abuse me. And so part of what I went through divorced my mind and my soul from my body. 
So a lot of the work that I'm doing in terms of healing, it seems like I'm just trying to stitch those two things back into one thing. Yeah. Well, and you like to go dancing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) How did you discover the power of dance? I mean, I know that sounds so... Like, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I love dance. I also love dancing. Sure. And I think watching youth say, I'm heading out dancing, I, I go, I started recognizing in myself that was always something that I turned to, particularly when I was in college. And, you know, especially if you hold things that are really difficult, sometimes it's really hard to just do the small talk thing with people. Mm. So it's like, Mm -hmm. if I can't get real with people, then I just would throw myself onto the dance floor and let it all out there. (laughs) And so I totally, Totally. I totally see why you love it so much, but I'm kind of wondering if there was a moment when you're like, this is what I need to do. I didn't go dancing a lot. You know, I played in bands and stuff like that. I danced a little bit on stage, but it it wasn't something that I thought like, ah, I go dancing all the time. When I lived in New York, I helped run a ballet out there and the dancers there would take me out to clubs and stuff sometimes. And that was really fun. I don't know. I want to say like six months or so before I published this book, I was in a state. I was in like a a super triggered Mm -hmm. state and something about the rhythm plus the bodily movement, it, it just, just doing it took me to a really deep place. Like at first I was very much in my head thinking about how embarrassing it was that people were looking at me, thinking about how awkward I was just flailing around out there, you know? But like, as I did it, it just like calmed me and it started to send my mind and my spirit deeper and deeper into my body until there's like, it's like a weird it's not a blank place, but it is, I don't know, it reminds me of where meditation can take you or where uh, yoga can take you. And all of those things are somatic practices. I think just that one experience helped me start thinking about dance as medicine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I look like a total weirdo <laughs> when I go to the club. I, I, I go, Cause I'm not going there to like hook up with anybody or like drink my face off or anything like that. Like I go there, I've got a book. I'm like sitting in the corner, reading my book, just waiting until the music gets right. And when it does, I just close up my book and I go out there and just close my eyes and just let the medicine happen. What is there a kind of music that you like dancing to, or oh, no, all, all of it? Them. All of them. They all have, yeah, yeah, pretty much all of them. How would you describe your dancing? Well, it depends on the music. So, uh, soul music, dancing to soul music, is like curvier and loopier and a little uh-huh. rubberier. Dancing to like industrial music is a little bit more angular. I I flail around a good deal. I usually cut out around like midnight when the crowds just like crush in and everybody's just grinding. Like if I can't flail, if I can't, if I don't have space to like really flail around, it's, it's, I'm not going to get what I came for. So have you heard of ecstatic dancing? Yes, but I haven't checked it out. Well, Tell I don't know. It. I really don't know much about it, but I, it seems like the the thing right now. I've been hearing a lot about it. Mm-hmm. And some people talk about going to almost like it's 
church, like going on Sundays. Yeah, yeah. dance church. And it sounds mm-hmm. very similar mm-hmm. to what you're describing to me. Speaking of church and talking about the Apostle Mark, so much of your trauma kind of originated in the church. And I'm wondering how religion plays a role in your life today. I still respect it. I still understand mm-hmm. it. I understand. I mean, there, there's so many good things mm-hmm. about it. I, I'm still a very spiritual person. I mean, just being an artist, I just believe that a lot of our daily life is just kind of the surface of the water and that it actually runs very, very deep and that there are things that we don't understand. So I still buy that. I still buy that people believe in something they can't quite explain. I think that a lot of it is the community and the safety, the idea that we're going to gather together. So many people I know, oftentimes myself included, are really lonely. We live in an environment in which people are connected more than they've ever been in certain respects. But I think loneliness is endemic right now. So people yearning for community, I think that's a good thing. I think that people get in trouble when they believe that somehow or another it's not a human institution. Mm. That that somehow or another it is exempt from other environments. When people have faith to a point where they're just like blind to reason, blind to suspicion, that becomes a very dangerous environment, both for kids. I think politically it can become very dangerous. I think it's a good idea. It's a good idea. I mean, even just the idea that people get together and sing together, you know, Mm. that let's all stand up together and sing this song together. And this is a song that was specifically written to be easy for us to sing together. That act by itself is a worthwhile reason for people to get together. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness was created by me, Sarah Shaul, and is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual in Portland, Oregon. This episode was produced and edited by Jack Saturn with music by Samantha Jensen. Subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Word of mouth helps us find new listeners, so please leave us a review and let your friends know about us. More information about this episode and how to contact us can be found in our show notes and at griefgratitudegreatness.com. You'll also find links to follow us on Instagram, Patreon, and Facebook. Join us next time. We look forward to sharing more conversations with you.